Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this Show Us Your Portfolio episode, Jack and I sit down with Research Affiliates founder Rob Arnott to discuss his personal portfolio and investment strategy. This is a wide-ranging discussion on how Rob approaches long-term investing, and we get insight into how he is currently positioned, where he's finding value, and the areas of the market that he is avoiding. We round out the discussion with Rob's view on philanthropic investing, leaving money to kids, and other financial topics outside of his portfolio that I think investors will enjoy learning about. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Research Affiliates' Rob Arnott. Hi, Rob. Thank you for joining us today. It's a privilege. Thank you for the invitation. Today, we wanted to talk to you about something a little different than um, maybe you talk to a lot of people about, and that's um, about how you go about managing your own personal portfolio and your investments and how you think about your you know, overall investment strategy and your goals. Um, and I think, you know, we're very appreciative to have someone like you with your level of knowledge and experience in the markets to come on and sort of share the details. Cause I think, um, investors are going to learn, um, a lot from you. Um, with that being said, you know, your portfolio is specific to you, um, and ev everyone's, um, you know, appetite for risk and their return and their goals are different. So this isn't, you know, investors shouldn't watch this and walk away and start implementing the Rob Arnott strategy in their own personal portfolio. But I think that, you know, what we're going to hear today is, is going to be very valuable. But again, it's, it's specific to you and how you view your own personal investments. So with that, um, let's just talk about like, what is the overarching long-term goal with your investment portfolio? Well, um, part of it is lifestyle. Part of it is uh, bequests. Part of it is charitable giving. Um, um, Part of it is just the satisfaction of uh, 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 finding out <clears throat> whether I know what I'm doing. <laughs> and um, uh, that can be gratifying and at times uh, humbling. What is your personal benchmark? Not the S&P 500, I'm guessing. <laughs> no, I don't have an explicit benchmark. Um, uh, kind of uh, the classic benchmark that people want is the best of uh, the return of a half dozen different markets <laughs> and that's obviously unachievable, but you know, if, if, if I'm doing better than most markets, um, uh, in a broad spectrum of markets this year, for instance, has been a take no prisoners crash, uh, almost all asset classes other than commodities and cash have had a negative return. Um. Uh, MLPs are another outlier with modest positive returns, but bottom line is this has been a horrible year for multi-asset strategies, the worst, arguably the worst in history. Um, so are my personal investments, um, uh, up or down, they're kind of flat. And I view that as a, a, a very big win. I view that as, um, a remarkably good year. How do you, how do you think about your time frame? You, you mentioned charitable giving. I know a lot of times when people focus on charitable giving, they sort of focus on like maybe like an infinite time frame. You know, you're not really concerned about that. How do you think about the time frame with your personal portfolio? Well, my time frame basically is how long do I expect to be alive? I'm in my late sixties. So I've got a 20 year horizon 
And um, uh, that shapes my thinking. I'm going to be a patient investor. I'm not going to be particularly concerned over how am I doing this year, <clears throat> although there's, um, as I said, some satisfaction and occasional uh, humbling uh, in looking at short-term results. And I do view one year as a very short-term result. Um, but it's all in a context of much longer horizon um, results. And if I believe I am well positioned on a 20 year horizon, uh, I'll take whatever ups and downs come along the way. Um, you know, I was, I was thinking like for those people that retired, you know, last year, beginning of this year, you know, a lot of those folks were in maybe your traditional 60, 40 stock bond portfolio. And this is a, it's a great, you know, it's, it's an unfortunate, I shouldn't say great. It's, an, it's a good example, but an unfortunate set of circumstances, what, how things have performed. And it, it just brings to the surface, like the importance of thinking about sequence risk in retirement. Not just sequence risk, but an awareness of, um, uh, what is wealth. I wrote about this in the wall street, uh, in the, uh, financial analyst journal way back in 2004, I think it was, um, what is wealth? Is it the dollar value of your portfolio? Of course not. The dollar's worth a lot less than it used to be. So a million dollar portfolio today isn't the same as a million dollar portfolio 40 years ago. Is it, um, uh, the real inflation adjusted dollar? Now? No, no, it, it's the sustainable spending over the time horizon that matters to you. So if my horizon is 20 years, uh, how much could I safely spend from my portfolio per year in real terms over that 20 year horizon? Uh, when you use that metric, then a bear market year like this is not a big deal because the prices went down, but the income distributed from a 60, 40 portfolio hasn't changed. In fact, it's edged higher. So your sustainable spending is fine. It's diminished in real terms, but only because of the inflation. The burst of inflation has exceeded the increases in income from a 60-40 portfolio. But when you view things in that context, then all of a sudden the ups and downs of bull and bear markets are um, not only less daunting, but also can lead to a, a, a slightly inverted uh, perspective. I wrote a paper back in, I think, 1993 with Peter Bernstein. Uh, I believe the title was Bull Market, Bear Market, Who Cares? And in that paper, I pointed out that if you are retired and spending your money now and not setting aside new money, you're going to be rooting for a bull market so you can sell out at a good price. If you are pre-retirement and setting aside more money than you expect to, than you're spending, uh, then you should hope for a bear market. Nobody does, but my goodness, would you rather have every thousand dollars of new investment you put into the market, buy more in the way of stocks or bonds, uh, buy more in, in the form of future, um, sustainable spending, uh, people should root for a bear market unless they're in the dissavings stage of life where they're spending down their assets. And, uh, people don't think that way, but they should. I was, um, I was on your site earlier and I didn't realize research affiliates earlier this year celebrated its, its 20th year 
anniversary. Um, and, and you mentioned, you know, you're in your sixties now. And, um, I mean, at some point, I, I think we're, we're in a business where as long as we're kind of healthy and our mind is there, we can kind of continue to work for hopefully a long time. Although it's, I, I, I am at a standing desk now because being hunched over in my chair for like 10 hours a day, you know, <laughs> might be healthier to stand, but, um, how do you think about your, uh, re retirement and what you want to do in it? I mean, do you, do you envision being, even if you sort of start to peel off and spend less time at the firm, you'll sort of always be in, hopefully always be involved or do you want to kind of exit and go to Hawaii and vacation and play golf? <laughs> well, um, I have a dear friend from high school, uh, who spent a lifetime as a doctor who, uh, has retired this year. He, um, worked part-time for a couple of years and then retired completely this year and is overjoyed about it. He is, um, doing this, uh, uh, Scotch whiskey trail in Scotland. He has visited Greenland and Iceland and he's just having a blast. Um, that's not for me. I, I do that kind of traveling anyway. I kind of weave it into my life. I spend a half dozen or more weeks a year. Uh, doing fun travel junkets. Um, so for me, if, if you love your job, why on earth would you want to retire? Um, I can't imagine not working. Um, I can imagine, and in fact do diminish the number of hours I commit to work. I moved myself to non-executive chairman status, uh, at research affiliates four years ago which doesn't mean I'm not involved. It means that, uh, I don't make management decisions about the company. Uh, uh, I get involved in anything I find fun and in nothing that I find not fun. And, uh, I, I like to joke that I've, I've moved to a part-time job. I'm only working 40 hours a week, uh, and I'm having a blast. So I don't intend to retire as long as my body and my mind allow me to work. I think that's, that's a really important point. Cause you see that a lot with retirees. Like a lot of people underestimate how much their purpose that comes from their work plays a role in their life. And so you go from this working full time to zero and people like after a while, you're like, how much golf can I play? You know, I, I need something to stimulate myself. And isn't it nice to be out playing golf, um, when you're physically able to, my dad retired at age 68 and at age 72. Uh, his, his body was starting to, uh, he had cancer and his body was starting to, um, cause problems. So he initially could have the settle for nine holes. And then he would sit on the golf cart with his friends, um, playing the first three or four holes and, you know, do that sort of stuff, weave that sort of stuff into your life while you are able. Uh, it doesn't make sense to me to wait until retirement to do the fun stuff, because by the time you retire, you've got a limited number of years of healthy life. There people talk about life expectancy. What's not talked about is healthy life expectancy without chronic ailments. And that tends to be, um, three to five years shorter. So, uh, at my age, my remaining life expectancy is about 18 years. I'm in good health. So maybe it's 20. Um, but, um, my healthy life expectancy is probably 15 years. I want to have fun during those 15 years and I wouldn't want to wait to retire to do that. 
Yeah. Are you familiar with Peter Atia? Have you heard of him? No, not. You, know, I, you should look at him. It's very interesting. He's, he's a, he's a doctor, but he does a lot of work around this idea of health span instead of lifespan. So he, he's talking about like, what should you do to make it so you can be a functional person for a longer period versus just being alive for a longer period. So, you know, he has people doing things like, you know, what, what muscles in your body would you need to work if you want to be able to lift your grandkids? You know, it's things like that, you know, and I think it's really interesting because I think it plays to your point of, you know, you want to be functional as well as not just, you know, not just alive. For me, for me, I use yoga. Um, uh, I do yoga about five times a week, roughly on average. Um, I, I hate exercise. Um, uh, I've heard that, uh, every minute you exercise adds a minute to your lifespan. And I, I think, do I want to spend that extra minute doing exercise? Uh, that doesn't make sense. So <laughs> my form of exercise is, um, uh, when I'm traveling, I, I, um, walk a lot and, and, uh, um, I do yoga regularly. Uh, my wife and I are in two weeks are going to Northwestern Italy to go truffle hunting. Okay. Well, that'll mean putting on the boots and slogging through the woods for several hours a day. Um, shifting, shifting to your portfolio, I just wanted to ask you to, as we sort of start to dig into it, wh what asset classes do you invest in? I mean, are you a stock and bond investor? Do you things, do things beyond that? What are the major asset classes that we would find in your portfolio? The main asset classes I deal in are liquid stocks and bonds. I, I invest in things that I think I understand where I think I have a competitive advantage and, um, uh, venture capital. I leave that to others, um, uh, with venture capital and private equity, uh, it's all about the individual deal and the deal makers, uh, are the deal makers good at what they do? And are they driven by helping their investors profit from their choices or are they driven by helping themselves prosper? So it, it's, um, it, it, it's not really for me. I've, I've invested in private businesses when friends came asking and my track record on that is moderately abysmal. So now I warn people that if I invest with them, it guarantees that their, uh, their company is going to go to zero. Uh, <laughs> it's not quite that bad, but, um, uh, other than investing with, uh, very close friends and with my own family, um, where the goal is not entirely to make money. Uh, I stay away from illiquid markets. Again, focus on things that you think you understand. And how do you think about bonds? You know, there's sort of two schools of thought on bonds. You know, one people, some people see bonds as sort of this fixed thing in your portfolio. You always have them. Other people say there's a time to be owning bonds and there's a time not to be owning bonds. And, you know, coming into this year was one that people said maybe it was a time not to be owning bonds with yields very low. So how do you think about that? Are, are you tactical with that at all? Or do you just own bonds all the time? How do you think about that? It used to be that bonds were called fixed income. Um, well, when the yield is zero, that's fixed non-income. And so it seems to me that if you view it as a fixed income asset, that reshapes the way you think about it. Uh, if the income is zero or negative, why would you want that? If it's negative in real terms, below the rate of inflation, why would you want that? Um, and so today, contrary to a year ago, um, the 10, 10 and 20 year tips have reasonably nice yields, uh, 
7% today for uh, the 10 year, 1.8 for the 20 year. Um, backed by full faith and credit of the US Treasury. That's not a bad real return. Um, where a year ago it was negative for 10 years and slightly positive for 20. Um, uh, high ones is not a bad rate of return, but you don't dare use it in your taxable portfolio because you're taxed not only on that income, but also on the inflation component. Uh, why would you want to do that? So, uh, to me, um, uh, if you think about bonds as fixed income, they're one, your risk off asset place to put money that when you want to go risk off. Uh, and to a source of fixed income, and it better be positive in real terms, even as a risk-off asset, you want positive in real terms. And do you just take broad exposure to the bond market, or do you have areas, do you try to pick areas within the bond market that you think are particularly attractive at any given time? I I, I have a, a big picture focus. I, I don't drill down to individual assets and markets. So um, uh, I'll look at inflation-linked bonds, distinct from treasuries, distinct from uh, investment grade, distinct from high yield bonds, but I don't pretend to have the time to drill down to individual uh, issues. I want to get the strategic decisions right. And a year ago, I had zero interest in any bonds other than um, uh, emerging markets debt, which then as now had yields that were slightly higher than U.S. junk bonds. Uh, well, that's been sort of a safe haven in the last year in the sense that it's down less than many asset classes, but it is down. Um, and uh, today, in contrast, I think, I think tips are actually mildly interesting. Um, uh, I have a personal allocation. Uh, um, five, 10% of my personal liquid net worth in inflation linked bonds. And that's not because I relish the idea of a 2% real return. It's because if that yield goes back down to zero, if you've got a 20 year inflation linked bond, it's got a 20 year duration, roughly 16 or 18 actually. So every 1% change in yield is worth 16 or 18% appreciation. Uh, it seems to me that the yield has been pushed artificially high by a combination of central bank intervention, pushing up rates to try to deal with inflation and the markets, um, embrace of the view that this is going to work and then inflation will come down in a hurry and therefore break even inflation rates, the gap between treasury yields and inflation-linked bond yields hasn't increased. It's the same as it was a year ago. It's actually even a little lower than it was a year ago. And so to my way of thinking, this is a tactical opportunity to lock in a decent real return in tax-deferred assets and to earn capital gains if that yield turns out to be unsustainably high. You haven't seen real yields this high in a long time. One of the things that uh, equities had in common with bonds is coming into this year, they also look pretty terrible on an expected return basis. How do you think about equities in your portfolio? I mean, will you move them up and down based on valuations, depending on what you think, or, or do you have a pretty consistent allocation to equities? Uh, I rarely am out of equities uh, because there is an equity risk premium most of the time. Uh, um, but I would say that um, 
I really want to look at what the risk premium is. And uh, today we're looking at U.S. stocks uh, after a bear market, still at a Schiller P.E. ratio of 27 times. Now, what's the Schiller P.E. ratio? It's price relative to 10-year average earnings. So it smooths the earnings so that when you're looking at peak earnings, you don't have the illusion that it's a low P.E. ratio. And when you're looking at trough earnings, you don't have the illusion that it's at a high P.E. ratio. Uh, it, I think of it as price relative to sustainable long-term earnings. And that ratio was 27 times uh, the 10-year average earnings at the market peak in October of 2007 before the global financial crisis. It was at 27 times. It's taken a bear market to get it back down to what used to be a peak level. Long way of saying U.S. stocks are far from cheap. Now, U.S. value stocks are not bad. They're sensibly priced. But uh, international stocks, um, EFA, uh, uh, stocks in Europe and Japan, they're relatively cheap by historical standards. Emerging market stocks, cheap by historical standards. And people will say, yeah, but, but what about um, uh, the Ukraine war and what it's, going, what it's doing to energy supplies across Europe? And isn't that going to bankrupt a lot of businesses and so forth? Um, there is no such thing as a cheap market where there isn't a narrative for why it's cheap. It doesn't exist. So you have to ask the question, is that narrative going to be relevant in five years? That's my Occam's razor. Um, is the Ukraine war still going to be going on in five years? I sure hope not, but um, I suspect not. Um, I think one of two things happens over the next five years. Uh, either Putin gets his corridor to Crimea and uh, things settle down in a um, what might be viewed as a mild win for Russia, or um, Putin's dead and his successors say enough of this, we're getting out of there. And, uh, either way, energy supplies to Europe are resumed. Either way, the impact on the European economies begins to dissipate. Um, uh, COVID is COVID still going to be an issue in five years? No, of course not. It'll still be here. It'll still be taking lives, but it'll be just part of the landscape like flu. Um, and so as you go through these narratives, uh, you find that it's often fairly easy to answer the question, is this still going to be a big deal in five years? Is soaring debt as a consequence of COVID lockdowns and uh, fiscal stimulus still going to be an issue in five years? Of course it will. That debt's here forever, uh, or at least forever in terms of um, secular horizon that matters to most people. Um, and so it helps to identify, it helps us to identify what issues to focus on. Uh, Charles Gov is a dear friend, and he's, uh, he's that oxymoron known as a, a, a really insightful French economist. <laughs> shouldn't exist, but he's one. Uh, and he, he's fond of saying, um, 
uh, with regard to media and politicians, what are these bastards trying to distract me from? Because the narrative that's out there today is out there today because they want it to be out there today. And what are they trying to distract you from? And that's also a useful paradigm for uh, uh, gauging where the opportunities lie. Um, so long answer to a short question, but uh, I think emerging market stocks and international stocks are cheap. I've been called a perma bear. I'm not a bear when things are cheap. Um, I think that value stocks, the low PE, low price to book, low price to sales stocks in emerging markets and international markets are cheap. Uh, in fact, quite cheap. The narrative that makes that happen is yes, but these economies are troubled and across Europe. Yes, but, um, restricted energy supplies are going to push a lot of these value companies into bankruptcy. Um, the time to buy is a, at a time of peak fear when everyone's afraid and the narrative is overwhelmingly bearish. The opportunity for that narrative to turn out to be too pessimistic is very real. Yeah, I like that idea of thinking forward five years and will this be an issue? You know, that, that probably works with companies too in terms of thinking if they're dealing with problems, will those problems be fixed? And, you know, in, in many cases, you'll find that probably they'll be okay in five years, but then you have your outlier situations like Russia where the market no longer existing is not going to be fine in five years. So, you know, in those cases, it doesn't work out. So, but I think that's a good way to kind of put those in the, in the right context. Actually, mentioning Russia uh, and Russian stocks is, is an interesting observation on... Uh, I've been a bull on Russia because the stocks were very, very cheap. And, um, we had outsize allocations to Russia in our various equity strategies. The market was down around 3% of the emerging markets and we were up around six or 8%. All right. So with the stroke of a pen in March of this year, uh, Russian stocks got revalued to zero by, uh, rating agencies, by, uh, by custodians of, uh, uh, assets, by the index companies that create the emerging markets index, for instance, um, how'd we do? Well, we beat the emerging markets, the MSCI and FTSE emerging markets indexes in March. Well, six to 8% of our portfolio was written down to zero. We beat it in the first quarter. We beat it year to date through now, um, which means that we were able to absorb a write-off of 68% of our assets uh, and have room to spare and beat those markets. Well, that's kind of cool. If you take your single worst investment choice with the blessings of hindsight um, and find that it didn't hurt you that much. Uh, was it a disastrous error? Um, if one thought Putin was going to invade Ukraine and one thought that Russian stocks would be potentially revalued to zero, of course it was a mistake. If one thought alternatively that Putin is mercurial and dangerous and that therefore uh, you should haircut expectations. And then all of a sudden, a modest allocation to Russia is a calculated risk that, that um, 
made sense at the time. It's interesting. The mutual funds that are based on our fundamental index uh, held some Russian stocks. Uh, the emerging market strategies held 6 to 8%, which were marked down to zero. The stocks are still in the portfolio. Are they worth zero? No. Are they worth more than zero? Yes. Who knows how much? Maybe 20 cents on the dollar, maybe 50 cents on the dollar. If patient, maybe 70 cents on the dollar or maybe five cents on the dollar. I don't know, but it's not zero. And, um, the notion of selling it at zero, because that's what the custodian says it's worth strikes me as a little bizarre. You're getting at something that I think about a lot too, because we had a couple in our international portfolios, we had a couple of Russian stocks as well. And, you know, you always want to, I think Andy Duke calls it resulting. You always want to look back at what actually happened and say, oh, I should have known that was going to happen. But, you know, when you look at the facts at that time, it's much easier to say now, you know, well, this is what happened. So that's what I should have done. But, you know, knowing what everybody knew at the time, I mean, there's a lot of big money managers that held Russian stocks. So maybe it wasn't as obvious as I'm thinking, like looking back in history. Sure. That's exactly right. Yeah, put, hindsight is twenty twenty, and it's very useful to uh, reframe that in terms of uh, at the time was this a reasonable view of the world? And my my view at the time was if Putin doesn't do anything too reckless, uh, these stocks are cheap, and it'll be hard for them not to produce pretty good returns. Um, but he is reckless, so allocation should be modest. Getting back to your portfolio, you mentioned value stocks and you mentioned emerging markets. And I think when you came on with us about a year ago, you, you said you had the vast majority of your equity position in emerging markets. So is that the same now? Or are you still heavily weighted towards value and heavily weighted towards emerging markets? Still heavily weighted towards value and still heavily weighted towards emerging markets. Uh, I, I do have MLPs. Um, uh, I do have real estate and um, those have done well year over year. The real estate is a question mark because who knows what rising uh, Fed funds rates are going to do to real estate prices, but they aren't falling yet. Um, how do you think about the idea of with something like emerging markets, how much is too much? You know, I'm sort of similar to you in that I'm really not too affected by the ups and downs of the market on a day-to-day -day basis. So I can take aggressive positions in certain areas, but I, I often think about like, when am I going too far? So, I mean, how do you think about like, what's a comfortable amount of your portfolio to put in emerging markets? Let me reframe that in a, a slightly different way. Uh, if you buy the Vanguard index fund, 7% um, of your money is in Apple stock. If you're an equity investor and that's all of your investments are in U.S. stocks, which hardly anyone would say that's not prudent, that's too dangerous, you've got 7% in a single stock. Why on earth would an allocation at least that large in emerging markets, which collectively are less volatile than Apple stock, uh, why would that be viewed as uh, a large allocation? Um, viewed relative to a peer group, relative to your next door neighbor, relative to your competitor, if you're an asset manager, um, maybe 7% in emerging markets is a big allocation viewed objectively in terms of absolute exposure and absolute contribution to your portfolio risk. I don't think a 20% allocation is all that big a deal. Um, having, uh, half of my liquid assets in emerging markets is, um, perfectly reasonable in terms of its contribution to my aggregate portfolio risk, but you have to be willing to set aside what I call maverick risk the divergence between your results and somebody else's. 
So um, I, uh, if, if Putin invades Ukraine, I will look pretty stupid in that year. But isn't it interesting to note that uh, emerging market stocks are down only a couple percent more than U.S. stocks, even with uh, an entire country's holdings uh, marked down to zero? Uh, so people think that emerging markets are going to magnify U.S. stocks on the downside because they have in the past. Well, they have in the past because the starting point was rich pricing. The starting point now is cheap pricing. And in fact, they haven't magnified the downside relative to the U.S. They will, in my view, handsomely magnify the upside. Um, so whenever we see the market rebound, I would expect a stark uh, uh, and much larger rebound in emerging markets. So I'm fine with the exposure. The point you made is really important for individuals sort of listening to this, thinking about building their own portfolio, which is a lot of this has to be measured relative to your own tolerance not to bail on the strategy. You know, if, if you can do what you and I can do and you can't you're not going to bail on the strategy during the underperforming years, then you can have a larger, you know, allocation. For people who aren't going to do that, and this is something we've learned managing money over the years, then they, they need a smaller allocation just because that behavior is such an important part of this. It's interesting. I, um, uh, in the market crash in 1987 and in the tech bubble bursting in 2000 to 2002 uh, and in the global financial crisis of 08, 09, within uh, weeks of the bottom, uh, in every case, I was sitting next to somebody on a plane who said, what do you do? And I say, I'm in investments. And they'd say, oh can't believe the stock market. I, I, I'm never going to invest in stocks again as long as I live. Um, uh, I've had almost the identical conversation uh, in three separate major market declines um, within weeks of the bot. Nobody's bet my ear on that topic uh, this go around. So uh, based on the highly statistically significant sample of three conversations, uh, that means we're probably not at the bottom yet, but, but people, when I hear something like that, that just tells me you exceeded your risk tolerance at the high. The problem isn't that you have too much in stocks. Now, the problem is you had too much in stocks coming into this and people need to gauge their risk tolerance. Um, it is almost impossible to gauge your risk tolerance with any precision. But you can safely assume that your tolerance for downside risk is considerably less than you think it is. Picking up on the, on the idea of downside risk, you know, one of the things a lot of people have learned this year is this idea that stocks and bonds can go down together. I mean, I think the 60-40 is in one of its, if not the worst drawdown it's ever seen. Um, and, and I'm wondering, how do you think about, you know, we usually ask right now about like alternative investments. You know, a lot of people are thinking about commodities or, or people think about managed futures. I mean, do you think with your personal portfolio, do you, do you put any of that stuff in there to fight inflation or do you keep your portfolio sort of the same way it was because it was sort of built to withstand these inflationary environments anyway? Well, I do use commodities. Um, uh, when I said I primarily use uh, mainstream stocks and funds, um, I'm happy to use commodity funds as part of my allocation. Uh, PIMCO has a commodity real return fund that uh, I'm happy to use for commodity exposure. And there are others out there, of course. Um, uh, so I will depart from mainstream stocks and bonds, but 
inflation, inflation sensitive assets, there's more of them than most people realize. Um, rising inflation is bad for mainstream stocks and worse for mainstream bonds. That's a given. What's not widely known is that it's good for emerging markets, stocks and bonds, because rising US inflation tends to be good for emerging markets economies. It's good for high yield bonds for a peculiar reason. And that is that um, uh, the real value of a junk bond issuer's debt is going down because of inflation. So they can actually wind up with um, uh, ratings upgrades and with those uh, a diminishing spread between their yield and the treasury curve. And as a result of that, mitigate the downside or even go up in a down market. Um, MLPs tend to be contracyclical in inflationary environments. So there are segments of the market that are interesting. I view them as very valuable, very useful diversifiers to protect against inflation. Um, but that said, you are absolutely right that this year is an incredible outlier. This is, uh, since the launch of the, uh, uh, now Barclays aggregate, it was, it was originally the Lehman aggregate. Um, since the launch of that index in 1973, uh, there's never been a year that's even one third as bad as this year. This is three times as bad as the worst year ever. And that, that span includes the 1980s when yields soared to uh, mid-teens. Uh, that includes every difficult environment of the last half century. And yet, this is three times as bad as the worst year ever. Uh, for stocks, it's an outlier year. It's bottom 5% of the years uh, in the last century. And for other asset classes, we, we tracked 16 asset classes. We did a simple assumption. What if you put all of your money equally in the 16 markets and asked, how did that perform year by year, going back as far as we can get the data. And the worst single year, um, was, um, uh, 1974 down 4%. That's all down four because some markets were up, some were down. Uh, this year, that blended portfolio is down 17. <laughs> and the only part in that portfolio that's up is commodities. It's interesting too, because, you know, we track it through our website, we track the permanent portfolio, you know, which usually is pretty good about limiting drawdowns. And it's been better than the 60-40 this year, but because the inflation fighting part of it, the gold has performed poorly as well. I mean, I think the permanent portfolio is also in its biggest drawdown ever. So it's been a very hard year to find something that's working. Yeah, absolutely. And it drives home the point of diversification. Um, uh, I prefer to use silver rather than gold as um, a kind of concentrated targeted inflation hedge. And silver futures have been catastrophically awful this year. All right. So that's uh, part of my portfolio. But um, uh, so what? You're going to have some things that are way down, some things that are way up. I wonder, I, I would usually ask you now about uh, your private, your private investing, but you've sort of said you don't do too much of that, or maybe it hasn't worked out as well as you would, you would hope. But I wanted to ask you about a specific one you've done because, uh, you, you invested in our, in our friend Perth Toll's company, uh, Life and Liberty Indexes, I believe. And, and I think that's a really cool story about how, how you got in touch with her and how you did that. So I was just wondering if you could, you could maybe talk about that and how you met Perth. 
Oh, sure. Um, apparently she'd been trying to reach me, uh, uh, for some time. And, um, uh, my gatekeepers, uh, at, at my, um, uh, company helpfully, uh, said, go away. Uh, <laughs> and so, um, she found out I was attending, uh, uh, David Kotok's, um, uh, fishing retreat in Northern Maine one year. And, um, uh, she was trying to get from, uh, oh, what airport is it? I think it's Portland, Maine to the fishing site, um, uh, and was planning to drive, but decided it was too far, asked about a plane. And they said, well, you're in luck. Um, uh, Rob Arnott has a plane and there's a seat available in it. Uh, we can ask him if you can join. So she jumped at it. And so she bet my ear for the, uh, flight up and I loved her premise. Uh, I'm a libertarian. I'm a believer in freedom. And, uh, I'm a believer in limited government. I think government does almost everything that it does. It does badly. And so you want it to focus on things where nobody else will do it. And so defense, yeah, sloppy money wasting defense is better than no defense. Uh, police roads, you name it. Um, it has a place. But, um, interfering with people's freedom as happened in an unprecedented way during COVID, uh, did it save lives? That's not clear at all. And so, um, I'm a believer in limited government. She decided to launch an ETF that would invest in emerging markets economies proportional to their economic freedom. And I thought, what a great idea. And, um. So I was a seed investor in the fund, uh, and, um, early part of this year, it of course excluded Russia. It of course excluded China. And those are two of the worst performing, uh, emerging economies in the world this year. So what a wonderful way to add value while doing the right thing, not creating financial support for people with um, uh, not very enlightened intent. It's, it's an awesome story of persistence too. I mean, finding you on that plane, I mean, you know, we launched an ETF ourselves, so we know, I mean, building an ETF is exceptionally hard. You know, you, you sit there with, without assets for a while, you've got to really pound the ground, you know, to find people and, you know, to, to see the success she's had with that. It's, it's really, really cool. It is. It has been wonderful to watch. I, I hope it continues to gain traction. I, it crossed 200 million AUM a little earlier this year. Uh, before the bear market, uh, took it below that, but, um, 200 million is not a lot of money. Um, it's for an ETF, uh, but it's got critical mass sufficient to, to stay the course and the viability of the strategy is no longer in question. If it's 20 million, you can't run an ETF on 20 million assets and, uh, uh, which means a hundred thousand gross revenues, um, for long, but at 200 million, uh, assets and, um, uh, hundred and 1 million, uh, revenues, you've got staying power, which is wonderful to see. Jack and I both have young children and, you know, we like to get perspective. We know you have, um, 
children as well. You may even have grandchildren. I don't, I don't know if I don't still waiting patiently for that one. <laughs> nice. Well, th that'll be awesome when, when they finally come. Um, what's your, per, per, you know, some, I guess some people have the perspective with their children that they want to put away money for them, whether it's in a custodial account, a 529 plan, and they, they sort of are saving, you know, hopefully for themselves in retirement, but they're also sort of want their kids to have something, maybe a down payment for a house or to pay for uh, a wedding or, or, but then there's other people that have money that say, you know what, my kids are going to have to figure it out themselves. I mean, I don't want to give them money because it's going to, you know, make them not want to work as hard. So where do you sort of fall on that spectrum? Um, we all want the best for our kids. Um, uh, how you get there, uh, is the matter of debate. Uh, the people who say, no, I'm not going to give my kids money, let them figure it out for themselves. Um, frankly, I think the outcome for the kids is often better that way. Um, I set up trust accounts for my kids and I'm often wondering was, are they better off for that or not? Um, I, I saw a presentation by, uh, a, somebody who specialized in advising on family trusts and they, their opening line was every time you give something to your kids, you take something away. Think about what you're taking away and it may be initiative. It may be a need to work. It may be, um, uh, a lot of things. So bottom line is my kids have trusts very ironically and, um, uh, I hope that they use those resources wisely. Uh, it is not clear to me that it wasn't an enabler for, um, um, getting launched in life later than they could have, uh, um, they don't have to work, but they, not that they would earn a large income without working, but they could, they could get by without working. And I think that part of it is a mistake. Um, if I could do it over again, uh, I'd make the, um, uh, distributions contingent on, uh, uh, working and earning a living. But, um, uh, anyway, I love my kids and, um, I have a range of optimism from a little optimism to a lot of optimism about, uh, uh, the trajectory they're on. But I think the transition from young adult into adulthood was actually made more difficult, not less difficult by having resources. How do you think about your philanthropic, um, financial decision-making and, uh, you know, do you, uh, how do you assess where you give and how you give, what are, what are your sort of criteria? Number one criterion would be, will the money be used well now? And the reason I say now is because I have no way of knowing if it'll be used well in 10 years. So, um, a friend of mine perhaps coined the expression prequest instead of bequest, instead of giving in your will, 
giving while you're alive. And so, um, I give a lot, uh, uh, to organizations that I think are doing good work rather than putting them in my will, because who knows if 20 years from now, they'll still be doing good work. Um, and I have the same attitude about the idea of setting up a foundation. Firstly, I'm, I'm not Bill Gates, so I'm not gonna, uh, have a huge foundation, uh, even if I wanted to, but, um, the notion of, um, expecting future generations of managers of a foundation to have the same values that I do and to distribute the money to organizations that have those same values, uh, strikes me as a little nuts. Why not give away the money while you can have some influence on whether it's being used in ways that, uh, you think are appropriate. Um, so I give to some educational organizations, but that one I find really, really tricky because the university, uh, uh, community has gone so woke, um, and finding universities that believe that, um, the kids who attend the university should be exposed to all ideas and should have the experience of hearing ideas that they might find offensive, um, rather than being protected from the, uh, injury of hearing something that they don't like. Um, uh, there's not a lot of educational entities these days that don't have that old mindset. So that's, that's a big challenge for me. Um, uh, medical research, uh, I like, I think that's interesting, but you want to make sure that it's, um, uh, actually able to do something, able to move the needle, um, uh, case in point, you remember the, um, uh, ALS, uh, challenge where you would be dunked with water and ice challenge, the ice challenge. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Um, that raised $200 million. Um, out of that 200 million, they did come up with a, uh, a new treatment for, uh, ALS that adds about three months to your lifespan. Um, does that move the needle a little, but adding three months to the worst quality part of your life doesn't strike me as uh particularly grand use of money. So, uh, anyway, it's, uh, long answer to a short question, but I also give to political organizations that, um, uh, support, uh, libertarian principles. Um, they're not particularly popular these days, the notion of freedom and free speech. Um, how dare you support free speech? If I have to listen to something I disagree with. <laughs> As we get to the end of the, all these, we always like to ask a question around this idea that not all investments that are good investments necessarily make money. And so. I always give the example, I own a racing sailboat and my racing sailboat is a horrendous investment. It, it just, you know, it would a, a constant maintenance and upkeep and, but you know, I can go out every Wednesday night. I do a race with my friends. We can have a couple of beers. Like, you know, that, that's sort of invaluable to me, that, that impact on my life. And I'm, I'm wondering if there's anything like that. You mentioned travel before. Is there anything like that in your life that maybe you spend money on that might not be the greatest financial investment, but it's been really great for your life? Um, I'm a collector of a few things. Uh, I, I collect 
vintage motorcycles, fastest of their era. Um, people like to describe the classic cars or classic bikes as an investment. No, an investment is something you plan to resell at a profit. Um, have I resold motorcycles at a profit? Um, yeah, but I didn't buy them for that. I bought them because I love motorcycles. Um, I also, uh, collect vintage wines and, uh, that's a liquid asset. Um, but I don't plan to resell them, <laughs> um, and travel experiences. Um, uh, so these are investments in yourself, in your passions and things you love, not investments that you expect to make money on. Just don't be going down the road on your vintage motorcycle with a vintage wine bottle in your hand. <laughs> oh, absolutely. What I get one of those bottles in a backpack with a Oh, there you go. <laughs> so our standard closing question or when we do these show us your portfolio episodes is if you could impart one lesson that you've learned from building your own personal portfolio to your average investor, what would that be? Don't chase performance. Um, it's endemic. It's innate in, in the human, uh, uh, psyche, the, the notion of, um, something's hurt me get me out of here. Something's been good for me, giving me profit, giving me great joy. I want more of that. This is all very much human nature. It's a horrible way to invest. The notion of buying when you're at peak fear, um, goes totally against human nature. It's a great rule of thumb. And a lot of it all is just different manifestations of don't chase performance. Uh, even the quant community chases performance put together a bunch of factors in a multi-factor portfolio based on using the factors that had the best historical track record. Well, that doesn't mean they will have a good future track record. And so it's a form of backdoor form of performance chasing in a group that, uh, thinks they don't chase performance. Great. Well, Rob, thank you very much for coming on, for being, um, honest with us, sharing your, your knowledge, um, sharing how you're investing your portfolio. I think, uh, investors are going to learn a lot from this. So we appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. All right. All the best. Thank you. Hi guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of excess returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at practical quant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.